Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry over there. So this is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. How do, sir? Doing fine. How are you? I'm great. Yeah? Yeah. That's good. I enjoyed learning about the FDA. Yeah, you know, we've podcasted on them before. Why doesn't the FDA regulate herbal supplements? Right. Man, we did that a long time ago. Remember, that's where the herbal Elvis comes out. Oh, yeah. Was that the first appearance? Pretty sure. (laughs) Hey, man. (laughs) Give me some supplements. (laughs) Is that how your dad talked? Yeah. (laughs) He just, like, would go around the house. Yeah, when he was on herbal uppers, sure. Yeah, Yeah. sure. (laughs) Man, how did he talk on the herbal downers? He didn't. Uh He he just slept a lot. (laughs) Gotcha. Um. No, I'm just, I tease. Of course. So, uh, we have talked about the FDA before, but yeah, this is, um, this is a much more in-depth look. That's right. At the FDA. (laughs) Was that your Chris Walken? No. Was that Chris Walken? No, not really. I mean, the the weird pauses, but other than that. I was more doing Shatner. Oh. But I didn't go up an octave, which I should have. Sure. Pretty good though, huh? Yeah. Pretty clear. Yeah. Bill Shatner. <laughs> so uh, did you know most of this stuff? Um, well, I know that the FDA is is uh, has a history of controversy of people saying, uh, you not you don't act fast enough. We need these drugs to help people. Or then other people are like, stop acting so much. Exactly. You're going too fast and rushing these things to market. Right, exactly. So it's a, it's a bit of a tough uh, thing to reconcile, you know. I, I'll acknowledge they're in a tough spot. They really are, and, and um, I, I think that's a good good caveat or disclaimer to put at the front of this because yeah. it, it is a very controversial agency. It's the first consumer protection agency in the United States mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, it's the oldest one, and um, it's call me liberal or what have you, but I think it is a very um, important agency to have. Oh, I don't think that makes you liberal. Uh, so, some people may say so. What? Do they don't think we should regulate anything in this country? Yeah, there's people who think that like the FDA is just completely in the way of business. It's a fetter. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. A fetter, right? That's a thing. Sure. Because unfettered. Would... If you can be unfettered, you can be fettered. Right. Yeah. But is there something that can fetter, and would that be a fetter? Sure. So it's a fetter <laughs> to business to some in some people's minds. Um, yeah. I just think that you, when you are talking about something as um, elemental as food or drugs, mm-hmm. things we put into our bodies in the hopes that we will be have a greater well-being, that you kind of do have to have a, a big kid on the block looking out for all the little kids. Well, I mean, I think when, when big bucks are involved, it's pretty clear that uh, companies themselves uh, probably aren't going to like pull back on their uh, profits in order to just be super safe. Like it has been proven throughout history that they'll generally want like air on the side of making the money. You you're, know, you're a commie. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. This one's going to be fun. So, uh, okay. Now that we got that out of the way, Chuck, let's dig into the FDA because if you want to see whether or not you think the FDA is necessary, All you have to do is go back to the days before the FDA, which wasn't too terribly long ago. I mean, the FDA really only finds its origins in 
1906 on paper. It goes a little bit back before that to, I think, the, the Abraham Lincoln administration, Yeah, let's, who, who was a pinko himself. Let's climb in the Wayback Machine, shall we? Oh, yeah, it's been a little while. Man, it smells like cat urine in here. I know. I, well, I took a little ride with LaRon and the Wizard, and uh, sorry about that. Man, how are they doing? Well, they're doing great, but um, I forgot to bring a litter box, so yeah, yeah, there was an accident. This is gross. Um, so here we are in the Wayback Machine, and we're going all the way back, like you said, to the times of Lincoln. Yeah. And uh, what he did, he he kind of kicked kicked the uh, man. I couldn't say that the other day in private kick conversation. Kick the bucket? No, I want to say get the ball rolling and kick it off. And I said kick the ball. Kick the ball rolling. I said that the other day. It's like twice. That's okay. See, so he wanted to kick the ball rolling. <laughs> and so a new t-shirt, you know. He appointed a chemist named Charles uh, Weatherill to analyze agricultural materials. He um, sniffed them on the case. Yeah, he sniffed them on the case, not off. <laughs> and said, hey, food and soil and fertilizer, maybe look into that. We have the new Department of Agriculture. And then his successors, uh, Harvey Wiley and Peter Collier, were the dudes who really... Um, Kind of got things going in a in a like a serious way for the FDA. Well, they saw like a real um, reason for an agency that was in charge of guarding, safeguarding the purity of food and drugs that the American yeah. public was ingesting. They basically saw what was going on. It was like, hey, yeah. we might need to step in here because prior to this, I mean, we talked about it in um, our bizarre medical treatments episode. I think where yeah. we were just talking about. Um, like little kids being given morphine, yeah, in like a a prescription that in no way, shape, or form said there was morphine in it. It just calmed colicky babies, yeah, and it calmed them by bringing them to the brink of death on a morphine overdose. But you could buy it over the counter. Hey, you shouldn't regulate that. That's business, right? That's so, private. <laughs> that's one, <laughs> and that was the one that actually used morphine. There were, I'm sure, others that were out there that were. Um, yeah, much more lethal. Sure. Use knockoff morphine or something like that that Cousin Tony made in his basement. Yeah. You could do it. You could put it in a bottle, <laughs> bottle and if the, person, uh, if the person bought it and they died, well, buyer beware. Yeah. You know? Um, so the guys like um, Wiley and Collier, especially Wiley, though, yeah. were really adamant about getting some sort of regulation and specifically taking this agency that they've been handed um, and, and building it into into a real powerhouse. Yeah, and over the course of about 25 years, they got Congress to look over uh, about 100 uh, bills for the food and drug um, industry. Right. And I guess Congress said, no, no, no. We're pretty deep in the industry's <laughs> pocket, so we can't sure. really do anything right now. We agree with you. Yeah. Totally great idea, but I'm sorry, but I, I, a, a car is about to be invented, and I want to own one pretty right. bad. Well, that all changed, though, my friend, in 1906 um, when uh, reporter novelist Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, Yeah, which um, I think everyone's heard of this very famous book that uh, exposed the practices of the meatpacking industry yeah. in Chicago in particular. But um, it was a big deal, and it caused a lot of people to really freak out. It was, and it was a novel, which means yeah. it was fictitious, well, but it was sure. based on his, and he was a journalist too, Yeah, it was based on his experiences, I guess, working undercover in the Chicago meatpacking plants. And uh, apparently, I guess Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, set up a, an investigation, a committee to investigate yeah, the he claims was, made in the He's no fan jungle. of Sinclair's at all, but I think he sort of 
everyone was so repulsed he had to do something. Yeah. I mean, like, it really got the American public up. Because the stories are things like um, they were using diseased cows for meat, and there were rats that were crawling around on the cows. Yeah. And so they poisoned the rats. And then the dead poisoned rats with the poison in the diseased cow meat would all be put into a grinder, and there was your potted meat on the other side. Yeah, he was, uh, I still won't eat potted meat. Yeah, well. I don't care what <laughs> year it is. <laughs> you take me to the future in 20, uh, 2312, and I'm not going to eat potted meat. I wish the way back machine could go to the future. Well, that's the way forward machine. Oh, we have one of those? Well, Noel's working on it. Okay, good. It'll be a while. Um, so they had to do something because there were even accusations of people being in meat, um, yeah. which apparently was not true, and that was really fictitious. Right, but that committee that investigated uh, Sinclair's claims in the jungle found that pretty much everything else he said in that book was true, yeah. except for the guy being ground up with the beef because he fell into a meat grinder, and they were just like, all right. Again, the meat business not able to police itself and say maybe we shouldn't put diseased rats in meat. Uh, so the government was forced to step in. Mm-hmm. And in 1906, on June 30th, Congress passed the Food and Drugs Act, a.k.a. the Wiley Act. And that prohibited um, trade of mislabeled and contaminated food, uh, bevies, and medicines across state lines. Yep. So I guess you could still sell it in Illinois. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing I never get is the shipping thing. Like, well, at is the that time, the only thing that they can uh, enforce or? Well, yeah, the the federal government is there's always been a struggle between state, state sure. and federal. Right. Yeah. And so the kind of the line has been drawn at the state borders where it's like right. once you cross the state border, all of a sudden you're part of the United States rather than yeah. just the state. And you want to leave it up to the state. But yeah. Over time, the federal government has taken more and more power from the states. Right. With the uh, Wiley Act, though, Chuck, I mean, it's named after Wiley, so it gives you an idea of, like, the lengths that this guy went to 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 try to establish some sort of standards for purity in food, right? Yeah. One of the things he did was set up what came to be called the Poison Squad. Yeah, that's a great name, isn't it? It really is, and it was a sensational name, and at first he fought it, and then he finally saw, like, he, he was worried that... With a name like the Poison Squad, they had their own little Poison Squad anthem, and yeah. um, the the articles written about the Poison Squad were really sensational. And like, can you believe how crazy these guys are? Yeah. Um, and at first, Wiley fought it because he, he he was like, "This is a really serious scientific undertaking." Sure. And then finally, he saw the writing on the wall. It was like, "You can get America behind this whole idea if you just give them the Poison Squad as they want the Poison Squad." Give so them an anthem. Like, <laughs> have at it, everybody. Did they have an anthem? They did. It's in this uh, this article from like the FDA's own consumer magazine or whatever from, I think, 2002. The Poison Squad. The Poison Squad. It's, it something like it's that? It's something. It's kind of like that. It's like um, it's like uh, w- when they take these bites, um, they won't feel any pain. Yeah. <laughs> But when they wake up in the morning, they'll probably never be the same or just stuff like that. Yeah. Just kind of like, um, you know, how they used to make jokey songs in the early 1900s. Interesting. So what the Poison Squad was, was uh, a group of men, uh, volunteers, we should point out, who signed up for this and repeatedly signed up for this yeah. and signed away their right to sue or anything. They were fully on board um, to eat poison and to basically... 
uh, in a in a kitchen there on uh, Washington D.C. in the basement of the FDA's building. Yeah, they would they had a chef that apparently made some great meals mm-hmm. laced with all kinds of poison, formaldehyde, right. uh, borax. Uh, what was the really harmful one? Uh, it was called copper sulfate. Right, which is now a pesticide, correct? Yeah, and they use it to make canned peas appear bright green. And that that kind of gets to the heart of the matter, Chuck. Like they, these guys weren't just eating poison just for fun. Oh no, they were testing out stuff that was being used as preservatives in yeah, food at the time. Exactly, additives and preservatives and stuff like you said to make your peas greener. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? So people used to use formaldehyde to preserve meat. Makes sense. Right. People used to use borax. To yeah, preserve. formaldehyde. Look how long that human head's been in that bucket. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's put it on beef. <laughs> so, uh, did you touch that head, or did you just oh, like see God, it? No. You didn't poke it with the end of a mop. No, or no, no. It, it, his face bobbed up at me, and I was just like, "All right, there it is." Oh my God. Hello, sir. <laughs> so, uh, the poison squad made great headway. They they really determined a lot of stuff that shouldn't be used as preservatives, like that copper sulfate that was used to make peas green. Yeah. National heroes, in a way. Well, yeah. They also proved um, overall that selling adulterated food wasn't just a buyer beware kind of thing. Right. That it actually posed a real public health hazard. Well, yeah, they got super sick. They they did. And it got publicized. These guys are getting sick on purpose from the same stuff that you're feeding your kids. Yeah, which is why they shut it down eventually. Right, and the public all of a sudden is like, well, we don't want this stuff in our peas. I don't care whether they're green or not. I'm not eating this. And then public pressure led to finally Congress enacting the um, Food and Drug Act. I wonder if, um, when I was reading this, I was wondering if that has something to do with the the thing with peas. Like, I, I don't think people generally like peas. And I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Peas are gross. I like peas, but I wonder if that was like a, a stigmata on the pea when this stuff came out. You know, <laughs> have blood on its palms, <laughs> blood on its pea. <laughs> uh, Maybe I don't know. I don't either. Surely it had some effect. I would guess. Well, it's like it probably a lot like um, how they spray produce in the produce section, right? Even though it increases its rotting time dramatically. Why do they do that? To make it look prettier? To make it look fresh. It's ridiculous, but it's probably the same exact principle. I bet you're right. Here's some poison to make your peas look <laughs> right. So the FDA, um, when they formally evolved, um, they evolved out of some other agencies. Uh, they've been through a bunch of name changes and reorgs through the years. Um, but in 1906, what they're, they were under the Department of Agriculture's Bureau of Chemistry, and they were the ones charged with enforcing that Food and Drugs Act. So right. They split them up in 1927 into two groups, the Food and Drug Insecticide Administration. Uh, they handled the regulations, and the Bureau of Chemistry and Soils handled the experiments. Yeah, before it had been just the Bureau of yeah. Chemistry doing both. Yeah, so they split them up. Eventually, they dropped in 1930 the name Insecticide, and it just became the FDA. Yep. And from there, they were in, under the guise uh, or under the purview of several agencies until the late 70s, and they finally landed where they are now which is the Health and Human Services. That's right. Yay, HHS. Green peas. (laughs) So today, the way they're organized loosely, they're not organized loosely, but this is a loose description. No, it's pretty tight. Uh, Is this. They have a a top layer of the Office of Commissioner of Food and Drugs. They report to the director of, sorry, the secretary of HHS. Who used to be Tommy Thompson. Really? 
Yeah, under Bush. Oh, that's right. Do you know who it is now? I don't. There's probably no one there. Obama hasn't been able to get anybody <laughs> confirmed like either term. Uh, that first layer also has seven support, uh, supporting organizations that support the commissioner. And they're mainly on, they're not like the rubber meets the road. They're the, on the policy side of things. Yeah. Basically litigation and stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the big stuff, the big overarching, we are the FDA. Yeah. And then below them are broken down the, or into components that handle Rubber meets the road stuff. Yeah, those are the five deputy commissioners, and um, they're they're like you said, they're the ones that really are uh, heading up the field offices. I think there's um, four hundred. I'm sorry, two hundred and twenty-seven field offices, and then they have their big home in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, where they have about close to fifteen thousand employees. And Chuck, um, let's do a quick quiz. You ready? Yes. Okay. The FDA. False. No. You gotta wait. Sorry. The, I know you're very excited right now. We <laughs> just hang in there. The FDA regulates, uh, true or false, um, x-ray machines. Um, I'm gonna say true. That's right. They, they regulate radioactive or radioactivity emitting machines. Like right. x-rays. Uh, pesticides. False. That's right, Chuck. Yay. Where'd you go? That's the USDA <laughs> from what I understand. Uh-huh. Um, illicit drugs like um, cocaine and crack cocaine. They don't regulate that. No, that's true. They don't. Yes. Uh, let's see. What else? What about donated blood? True. That's true. They they regulate biologics. Yes. You're doing great, man. Vaccines and blood. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Tobacco? Um, they do regulate that, I believe. Yep. And then what about uh, poultry, chicken? Yes, of course they do. No. Because it's food. No. USDA again. Although the FDA does regulate, apparently, the dairy industry. Yeah, but not meat and poultry. No. Talk about mind-boggling. They do regulate um, cosmetics, but obviously, because we did a podcast on it, uh-huh. they don't regulate uh, supplements. Herbal supplements. Yeah. That's, that was a good one, if I remember correctly. We really like got to the heart of the matter. Yeah, and there's a lot of, and I think it talked about it then, there's a lot of slippery language that can be used in body products, period, which always aggravates Emily to no end. Yeah. Because she has completely natural body products, but you can throw names on packages these days on foods, too, that just say, like, pure and natural and oh yeah, just these buzzwords that mean nothing, and there's no regulation for when you can use those words. Yeah. And it's just, it's, they're trying to sell people on something that's not true. Yes. It's really sad. Like light beer. I remember hearing years and years and years ago that light beer only has to be light in color to be called light beer. Oh, really? Yeah. But now that I'm grown, I'm like, I'll bet, like, who regulates that? I'll bet you it doesn't even have to be light in color. And light in color compared to what? Yeah. You can probably call something light beer if you want to. Well, it's light in calories, right? B- buyer beware. But your point is it's not regulated. Right, probably like not. a beer has to be under this many calories to be called a light Yeah, I don't believe it is. Yeah, and now not. that I think about it, it'd probably be the FTC that would be in charge of that kind of thing. But they got bigger Or the fry, ATF. Yeah. Man, the government sure does have a lot of lettered agencies. Yeah, one last thing about the FDA, though. There's a group of special agents in the criminal unit that carry guns. Really? FDA agents that carry guns and will shoot you. But, well, for doing what? Uh, I've got a great example of it. Okay. Had they caught whoever it was that poisoned the Chicago area Tylenol in 1982, mm-hmm. they probably would have shot that person. Yeah. Yep. 
Do you, do you know about that? I do. Uh, you want to talk about that now? Sure. Might as well, huh? Yeah. I remember this. I do too, man. Yeah. I was a six-year-old whose eyes were just opening to the ideas of yeah. poisoning and, and drugs and, and learning to fear <laughs> things that you bought at the store. Yeah, I didn't. I don't. I didn't know the specifics because I was only eleven and I never really like researched further um, as an adult. But a twelve-year-old girl died in uh, suburban Chicago after taking Tylenol laced with cyanide. Yeah. As it turns out, right. Um, she was dead by the next day, I believe. No, a couple hours. Oh, a couple hours. She took it that morning then? Yeah. And, and then died at 7 a.m.? 7 a.m. Wow. So uh, that same day, a 27-year-old named Adam Janice of suburban Chicago died. And then his brother and sister were consoling the family. They thought it was a heart attack. Uh, were consoling the family and just sort of doing the post-death family stuff. Very stressed, got headaches. They took Tylenol, and yeah. they both died. Yeah, I had no idea that connection. Three more people died over the next couple of days, all from they found out upon investigating. All of them had taken Tylenol right before they died. Yeah, so they started Capsules. looking at, right. Yeah, they started looking into it, and um, it turned out that there was poisoned Tylenol. In the Chicago area. Yeah. And everyone freaked out because at yeah. the time, Tylenol was like, that was it. Sure. You had an over-the-counter pain reliever, it was Tylenol. Yeah. And they didn't have tamper-resistant bottles at the time. What they later figured out was that somebody bought Tylenol, mm-hmm. took it home, I guess, laced it with cyanide, and then brought it back and made it look like it had been unopened. Yeah. And people bought them and died from them. They still don't know who did it. They made it look like it was unopened by just closing the lid again. Right. Because, there were, again, no tamper-resistant packaging. Right. So, Until this. Right. This changed everything. So um, the company that makes Tylenol under Johnson & Johnson like issued like a national media alert that said, like, everybody should probably stop taking Tylenol and send us your yeah. Tylenol and we'll send you new stuff that we know is good. But um, don't take Tylenol, which is kind of cool for a company. Yeah, they really like, I mean, they had no choice, I think, but to <laughs> super go on the offensive with this. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually due to Johnson & Johnson. Um, it, it wasn't the FDA saying, hey, we need to get tamper-resistant packaging. Johnson mm-hmm. & Johnson actually said, hey, I think we should start investigating tamper-resistant packaging. Right. So, so they sort of led the charge. Yeah, and then in, con- in 1983, Congress said... Um, Let's make tampering with medicine a federal crime. Yes. And then <laughs> just just six years later, the FDA said, let's make these awesome tamper-resistant bottles yeah. um, mandatory. Yeah. I don't know why it took six years to no, do that. We're talking about a federal bureaucracy here. I know, but it seems like that's something you could have sped through. Just my opinion. <laughs> right. But uh, anyway, 1989 is when um, that's why it's so hard to get into pill bottles these days, thankfully. Yeah. Little foil coatings and all that stuff that makes, um, doesn't mean you can't open it, but it means you will know if someone has opened it. Yes. You know, like if you buy it and you're like, wait a minute, that foil is poked through by a human thumb. Right. I can see it. And this stuff is glowing. <laughs> yeah. Tylenol's not supposed to glow. Uh, all right. So let's take a break. Okay. And after this, we'll talk a little bit more about how they regulate. Stop. You, you, you know. You should know.
So, um, how does, well, first of all, how much do they regulate? And the answer is a ton of products. Yeah. Um, some estimates say that 20 cents out of every dollar consumers spend, and that's on everything. TVs, you know, VCRs. Right, the FDA doesn't regulate those. Satellite things. dishes, laser discs. All the money that we spend. On everything. 20 cents out of every dollar we spend is on a product that's regulated by the FDA. It yeah. comes under their purview. Yeah, which, which means they have too much to do. Supposedly that equals about, they, they regulate about $1 trillion worth of goods and, and services. Well, goods. Wow. Yeah. All right, so they regulate, we already talked about what they do regulate. They also, oh, um, also offer guidance at times on maybe, uh, how, uh, advice on how regulation should be carried out. So that's one of their tasks as well. Right, like maybe you guys should make your pill bottles tamper resistant. Right. Our criminal enforcement unit isn't going to come shoot you if you don't because this is a guideline. Right. But now that it's 1989, uh, now it's mandatory. Yeah, or they may visit you. Um, they do about 16,000 facility inspections per year, uh, everything from dairy farms to blood banks. But mm-hmm. – um, they, like we said, there are way more facilities than they have field workers. So, uh, I think they, what do you do? They, well, they use the element of surprise. Sure. Or the potential, the element of potential surprise. Right. So, surprise inspection, surprise visits. Yeah. I, I hope, 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 and I'm pretty sure that the FDA doesn't call and schedule inspections ahead of time. Right. <laughs> If they do, then then write your congressperson and make sure that this gets changed immediately. Yep. Because they can't. We're talking 14,000 employees in total. Yeah. Not just inspectors. In total for all of the FDA. Oh, yeah. Less than 15,000 people are in charge of not only visiting factories and dairies and places that, that use x-ray machines and all this stuff, all the things that they regulate. Yeah. Not just in the U.S., but like in other countries too. Oh, they do. Yeah, they just set up their first office in Beijing in the last decade or so. What? Yeah, because they have to, they have to watch what's coming into the country as well. Because Americans don't just ingest American products. Yeah, we ingest products from overseas, and those things have to, they have to follow the same guidelines as any other product that's sold or sold or used in America. Because the FDA's jurisdiction isn't. Stuff that's made in America is right. stuff that is consumed in America. Yeah, I guess I just thought that would be maybe the FTC or something, but um, no. I imagine they all kind of work hand in hand to get the job <laughs> done. <laughs> they all quietly hold hands while they do their research. Uh, and how do they do this? They do it because they are funded to the tune of $4.4 billion. Um, about 2.6 of that uh, comes from the Treasury, and in other words, your tax dollars. And the remaining uh, close to two billion comes from user fees, which um, are very, very controversial. You want to talk about the user fees? Yeah, let's why do not? that, man. So the before uh, what was it, nineteen ninety two? I believe. I think so. The the FDA was fully funded by taxpayer dollars. It yes. got all of its funding from the treasury. Yeah. And then in nineteen ninety two, Congress passed a law. That said, the the FDA can start generating its own revenue mm-hmm. by accepting user fees. Yeah, the Prescription Drug User Fee Act. Right. So in that act, it says if you are a prescription drug company, a pharmaceutical company, and you want to have your um, your drug 
examined by the FDA. And in a lot of cases, most cases, you have to have it submitted for review by the FDA. Sure. You also have to pay a fee. Call it an application fee, call it a user fee, what have you. Well, there are many different fees. Right. So I'll call that. Let's yeah. say you want to get your drug fast-tracked. You can pay an exorbitant fee, yeah. and we'll put it at the top of the pile even. Yeah. And so all of a sudden now, Chuckers, the FDA is not policing the pharmaceutical companies any longer. It is servicing the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. And the pharmaceutical companies, as of 1992, became the FDA's clients. Yeah, and that was really, really bad as far as consumer protection goes. Yeah, and um, there are many different ways of looking at this. Um, one is that way, which is that the the pharma lobby is um, writing checks to the FDA mm-hmm. um, to the tune of billions of dollars, and that can't be good, right? Right. Uh, the FDA. The, I read this great article on PBS. Um, where they just interviewed a bunch of people for a variety of opinions. Yeah, um, it was very balanced. It was very balanced. Fair and balanced. Not like us. Um, <laughs> it's bad. They uh, The FDA's rebuttal will look a little something like this. Um, what what it's done is it's really helped us out. Um, we've increased our productivity by close to 80%. Mm-hmm. We've been able to hire so many more people, uh, which means we can regulate so much more. Um, it's really helped us in the review process. Right. The pharma lobby says this is great because uh, it gets things going super quickly. Right. It's very efficient. And it's it, not fettering. Yeah, and it hasn't changed the review process. It's just made things faster, and um, we can get these drugs to people quicker because people need these. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. Um, if, if you ask Raymond Woosley, who was, uh, he was up for um, – he was uh, the vice president of health sciences at University of Arizona. I think this was in, like, 2002. He was up for – commish of the fda he's, he a, was, he's a safety guy yeah he was rejected and he flat out said in an interview like it's pretty clear that people that really care about drug safety will never get this job again right um the commissioner of the fda and he said it's a great sadness uh to me that people who care about drug safety and food safety to the level that they get involved they try to make a difference and can't be accepted to regulate the agency uh, and he said for me it should be protection first and then serving second serving meaning the industry. Right. And uh, that's sort of not the way it's gone since the user fees have been introduced. Yeah. From from the research that we've done, it seems like every critic of the FDA from all walks of life and all stripes points to that user fee as possibly the number one problem. Yeah. Well, as makes far sense. as coziness between industry and the, the agency that, that they're, they're funding regulates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes total sense. You want to separate those two things generally. And then the other problem is funding for the FDA itself, that it, it is a grossly underfunded agency yeah. for what it's tasked with doing. So it does have to rely on those user fees, whereas... Uh, I think it's a, a lot like campaign finance reform. Yeah. Where if you could just take that and replace it with public money, um, then you can you can separate these two things that aren't supposed to be cozy with one another. That a government agency that's not supposed to rely financially on the industry that it's regulating. Yeah, and I know you want to do a show on uh, lobbying soon. That's yeah. uh, that's going to be a firestorm. <laughs> it is. We're going to just be sitting there like gripping the table the whole time. Well, what you mentioned, though, how they're funded, though, it's interesting. I think until recently, um, the way the money was even divided, uh, like how the budget money was spent, was pretty hinking because you couldn't even use any of that 
uh, user fee money to regulate safety at all. All right. of that had to go into the service side of things. Right. Uh, I think now they are starting um, to to uh, be able to use that money for safety as well. Yeah. But I think that's not happening fast enough for people that are truly concerned about the safety of our country. And there was this, uh, I think I sent it to you, there was this Forbes article from 2014, about a year ago. Um, there was a Yale study that came out that really just raked the FDA over the coals. And it was a, an analysis of a bunch of different FDA um, approvals from 2005 to 2012. Yeah, publicly published right. stuff. It's not like they had to dig in. Right. They just went and did an analysis yeah. of it. And they found that these FDA studies were um, all over the place as far as the data they accepted, yeah. um, what, what got cleared and what didn't. Um, the sample size, how long trials went on. Yeah. And, um, there, it, it was basically used to publicly shame the FDA saying, like, you guys aren't even using good science. You're not even trying to keep up this pretense. Right. That you're following your own standards or that you even have standards. Yeah, it's not you consistent. You guys are, you're just rubber stamping pharmaceuticals. And to kind of give an opposing point of view, this guy on Forbes said, well, wait a minute. Like, this is totally unfair. Because the FDA is actually, what they're being criticized for here is actually a certain kind of nimbleness mm-hmm. that the end user, the patients who are taking these drugs, really want. Yeah. So they're saying for something that's a really huge sweeping drug that's going to be used by a lot of people. Like say a like, heart drug. Right. Sure. They they should and typically do follow some pretty stringent guidelines. They have to have a huge population sample. They have to um, carry these studies out for years. Yeah. And um, they require a lot of really good data. But if you have something that is like a really obscure disease or a drug that treats a really obscure disease. Like mor- Morgulons. Sure. <laughs> they're going to accept this uh, data that used a population size of like 100 people. Yeah. Because there's just not that many people out there with this disease. And it may be a shorter lived study because if it's a really fatal disease, these people want this drug and to get it out the door yeah. quicker. And there may only be the one study. You may not have to duplicate right. it and replicate it like so, three or four times. So he did a good job of like presenting the the other case and really pointing out how the FDA is very typically, it's it's in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation yeah. on, on a daily basis. Sure. Because in that same study that found, you know, that they it will accept a population of 100 in a study. Um, and it, it goes out the door very quickly and the approval process happens fast in that, in yeah. that sense. On the other hand, um, when the FDA doesn't do that and really takes its time and digs in and studies, it gets accused of basically just letting people die, which was the case with the advent of AIDS in yeah. the 80s. Sure, HIV drugs were being tested and the people in the HIV community and, and at large in the country were saying, uh, advocates were saying, hey, people are dying and like these drugs are very promising. Like, yeah. let us try them out. And so I, I, I do get it, man. Like they've been accused of dragging their feet yeah. or going too fast and finding a happy medium or I think, I don't know. I don't know if it's a happy medium or if it's you should only strive for safety. And if it takes too long, it takes too long. Or if it is super quick, it's super quick. Yeah. Like safety is should be uh, the most important thing. And it doesn't seem like that that's the case. No, it it should be the the most important thing, but at the same time, there should also be an awareness of 
you know, what's going on outside the yeah. doors of the lab. Like the, there are people dying. Yeah. So yeah, you want a safe drug. But also, if you have people who are saying, like, remember with the Ebola outbreak, uh-huh. there are people who are like, I, I will die from this drug. I will sign whatever you need. Just give me the yeah, drug. Yeah, yeah, let me try it. Right. Sure. And they, they went ahead and, and let people use unapproved drugs. It's like the poison squad almost. These people were volunteering. Right. Uh, willfully volunteering, so. Well, they were also dying of Ebola at the time. Too. Well, yeah, those, sure. Um, the Poison Squad were totally healthy. Yeah, until um, they joined the Poison Squad. Right. Yeah. And did you know also the Poison Squad, um, it was a very scientific study. The guys were not allowed to eat or drink anything outside of this dining room. Yeah. Except for water. They had to turn in all their poo and pee. All of it. All of it. Not a drop or a speck was allowed to, to go unmeasured and no, unanalyzed. Not a drop nor a skid mark. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the, um, FDA and AIDS activist collision from yeah. the early eighties. Have you seen How to Survive a Plague? No. Great documentary. Yeah. But the, uh, the documentary deals in part with that and it's really, really interesting. And that was actually scored, the soundtrack was scored by our friends Superhuman Happiness. Oh, nice. Who listen to this show. Hey guys. Good for them. Yeah. So go see it. It's a very good, good documentary. I will check it out. Is that on, uh, the old red, uh, streaming service? <laughs> yes. I'm sure it's on. I'm sure it is. Called something like Netflix. That's that's exactly what it's called. Oh, okay. I didn't You're wanna... confusing me, Chuck. Uh, all right. So let's take another break here, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the uh, various successes and failures of the FDA. Stop. You, you, you know. Stop. 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 You should know. No. Stop. You, you, you know. Stop. 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 You should know. Stop. You should know. All right. Um, can we talk about this Harvard paper? Yeah. This is from uh, an article titled Risky Drugs, colon, Why the FDA Cannot Be Trusted. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and it was basically about a paper published in the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics from Harvard University where they contend that um, they present evidence, actually, that 90% roughly of all new drugs approved by the FDA over the past 30 years are little or no, or no more effective for patients than existing drugs. Um, they're saying it, it's they still beat placebo typically. Yeah, what they're saying is like all these new drugs aren't any better than the old drugs. There's just competition on an already saturated market. Exactly. So it's like, why put the FDA through that? If they're already overstretched, then... Why can't those resources be allocated to something else that it's dropping the ball on, right? Sure. And they also, you know, try to make a point about the, the safety level of these drugs that we are taking, uh, when they point out things like every week, every week, 53,000, uh, hospitalizations occur and 2,400 deaths occur every week in the U.S. because of people taking properly prescribed drugs to be healthier. So that's just a bad reaction to a, a an approved drug. That's how I read it, unless I'm reading that wrong. One in five drugs approved ends up causing serious harm, while one in ten provide a benefit compared to existing established drugs. So that's the 10%. So the data is then, this is what this Harvard paper is saying. It's saying that 
yes, one in ten drugs that comes onto the market that the FDA is approved mm-hmm. is provides a benefit that no other drug does in the past thirty years. Which I think, and now that I I, I kind of make a connection with something else, another article that that they were really touting, like there's no other drug like this. This provides a benefit that other drugs don't. Right. So I think that's a big like buzzword. It provides other benefits, right? But one in five of those drugs will go on to cause some sort of harm. Right. That's crazy. Yeah, and the, uh, they go on to say in that paper that the FDA, they feel, um, lends credibility to widening and lowering criteria for prescribing drugs, uh, what they call the selling of sickness. And um, what you're talking about, like a new and improved drug, basically drug companies are raising prices from year to year on the same drug. And they said, we're the only country in the world that allows a drug to have its price increased without showing, like, here's why, here's the benefit, here's why it's improved, and here's why it costs more. <laughs> and uh, apparently the U.S. is the only country that does that. So, Wowee. Yeah. If you want to um, read that article, and really all the articles we've mentioned, you can go to our podcast page on stuffyoushouldknow.com, the, po- the, uh, the page for this episode. It's got all the additional links. Yeah. I'm glad we're doing that now. I think that's good. Uh, yeah, it's definitely open things up. For I the think. truly curious. Yeah. You really want to dig in? Baby, we got it for you. Uh, can we talk about antibiotics and livestock? Yeah, this is a big one. You found this in the Atlantic, right? Yeah, and this is a big, uh, I mean, it's just a big issue these days, period, about what is going into the meat and uh, that people are eating, uh, like in factory farms and stuff. Um the FDA in 1977 basically said, we're not going to put antibiotics in livestock um, because it's dangerous. And just in 2012, they filed papers in court that acknowledged that they weren't safe. Um, it says more studies, uh, a series of additional studies were conducted by other government agencies and non-governmental organizations during the 90s, all of which generally support the FDA's concern regarding public health threat posed by antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, so what happens is you f- you give healthy livestock, otherwise healthy livestock, antibiotics. In their food. Right, because the, the living conditions are basically ripe for an epidemic. Yeah, or it helps but, them grow faster. Right. So, but if they're on antibiotics, they stay healthy despite these living conditions. Well, the problem is, is the bugs that these antibiotics are fighting off develop resistance to the antibiotics. Right. And they can, some of which are zoonotic, mm-hmm. these bugs. And so they leap from, say, cattle to humans, and they're already resistant to our antibiotics that we've been giving healthy cows. So now you have an antibiotic-resistant superbug. Yeah. And that's a, a really dangerous thing. And, and what you've just said is that since the 70s, the FDA has publicly said that this is dangerous and it should should not go on any longer. But they still, they didn't do anything about it. No, their, their tack right now is to say that the livestock industry can police itself. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's happening, but, um, that is their position at this point. Uh, and this is why you see a lot of meats now in your store that say antibiotic free. It's like a big selling point because, right. uh, even like you said, even the FDA says it's really dangerous. Yeah. But, uh, they just haven't enacted any law about that. Although they have, that's not entirely true. They have listed some antibiotics that um, I know they called out one in the article that said you can't use this one. Right. But apparently it's only used in like 0.25 or it's only. Yeah, 0.25% yeah, of 0.25. all antibiotics, cephalosporins. Yeah. 
So people that are, you know, want to live more purely are saying they're not taking enough uh, efforts. I mean, they were sued by the National Resources Defense Council. Uh, saying you have to take action on this. Well, and that's You're sad. To protect us. That 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 it takes the courts to force a government agency to protect consumers in that way, in a way that the agency itself is saying, like, yes, this is dangerous. Yeah, somebody should do something. Who will do something? And then everybody's like, well, it's kind of your job to do that. And they're like, oh, well, don't worry about it. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, they actually the FDA pulled public notices at the Federal Register that have been around for thirty years. They literally just made them disappear <laughs> overnight. Yeah. When this became controversial in the 2000, early 10s, um, they just said, we're going to take the, that, those briefs wh- where we said that it's dangerous and somebody should do something. We're going to stop having those published. Right. Um, they also were largely criticized um, a few years back for basically like just sitting on their hands about the GMO labeling. You remember uh, that? Yeah, that's yeah. Dan Quayle uh, kind of changed history with that many years ago. What did he do? I think he was the one that um, pushed for the legislation that allowed GMOs. Okay, so this is fine. You got GMOs. You got to label food that contains GMOs. Right. That's it. Don't do anything else. You just have to say on the label this product may contain GMOs. Right. Right. There was a big push. Apparently, a million signatures were were generated from the Just Label It campaign yeah. and were submitted properly to the FDA, and the FDA rejected all but 394 of the signatures that were given to it because <laughs> about a million of them were in a single electronic document, and they were like, these don't count. Wow. So they didn't do anything about it. And there's still no GMO labeling. So regardless of how you feel about GMOs and GMO labeling, that's pretty shady stuff. Sure. To just overtly reject a million signatures, Uh, especially as part of a large national public campaign. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Vioxx is a painkiller. That was approved by the FDA in 1999. And this is fun, by the way. A two what? <laughs> just to cover this stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, in 2000, a study showed that the drug posed a big heart attack risk uh, when compared to a similar painkiller. And Merck, who was the manufacturer of Vioxx, kind of blew it off and said it's really beneficial. And the FDA said, okay. And Vioxx, <laughs> That's pretty much how it <laughs> Vioxx remained on the market uh, for another four years. And um, they estimate between 88,000 and 140,000 heart attacks were caused by Vioxx in that time. And it wasn't, it wasn't the FDA who ever removed Vioxx. It was Merck bowing to public pressure. Oh, FDA never, no. never did anything Merck just it. took it off the market itself because it was starting to look bad. And the FDA was like, what's going on? What are you guys doing? How about a success? Um, in the 1950s, uh, in Germany, there were uh, scientists who created something called thalidomide, which was a sleeping pill. Right. And they said it can, it's over-the-counter. It's totally safe. Uh, safe it was all for, over Europe. For pregnant women, even. Yeah. is a sleeping pill. Not so safe, though, because um, children were being born with malformed limbs uh, to the tune of 10,000 worldwide, but not very many in the United States because no. uh, Francis Oldham Kelsey of the FDA was really resistant and made a big push to not allow thalidomide she didn't think it was safe. No, she was in charge of reviewing the data and yeah. said, what is this? This is basically anecdotal. Like, where's your real data? Yeah. And would not, withstood a lot of pressure to approve this drug and would not 
cave in. And as a result, only 17 babies were born um, with um, malformations yeah. because of thalidomide. In the U.S. In the U.S. And the whole reason that there were any was because they found out that the drug maker was pushing the drugs for free onto American doctors to distribute as samples. Right. While this, while the FDA was holding up approval, and so seventeen um, children were born uh, with deformities because of it, yeah. because of this these free drugs. Apparently, in Canada, the story was even different. The Canadian government it was totally it was totally legal and, and approved in Canada. Yeah, and for months after it became worldwide known that thalidomide cause birth defects because it, it um, crosses the placental barrier right. and arrests development of the fetus, right? Canada knew. Everybody knew about it. And it took months before Canada finally outlawed it. Oh, wow. So there's like this real big um, public shame hanging over Canada's um, government agency of regulating drugs wow. still to this day because of that. And Billy Joel wrote a song about it. Oh, Yeah. Well, it was in that uh, terrible talk. Uh, we didn't start the fire. Oh, yeah. Children of the little mice. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, but, yeah, the, that was one of the FDA's great successes. And as a result, actually, um, the uh, Congress passed something, a, 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 an amendment to the Food and Drug Act, the Kefauver-Harris Amendments of 1962, that really expanded the FDA's um, scope of duties. It put, um, you know how, you know those, how drug ads have all those disclaimers? Oh, yeah. That's from the 1962 amendments. Advertising is under the jurisdiction of the like FDA. They read those so fast, and the last one is an early death. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, did he just say early death? Right. No. <laughs> um, they, uh, and prior to 1962, the FDA had 60 days to respond yeah. to an application. And if they didn't get to it in time, well, that's fine. I'm sure it's fine. You can go to market. Um, that changed to, I think, 180 days, and it's just to respond. Um, and then also drug makers only had to demonstrate that their drug was um, safe, not effective. That changed in 1962 as well. Yep. Uh, they also um, said that they had to control the marketing of generic drugs uh, to keep them from being sold as uh, just like jacking up the price under a new name, mm -hmm. basically. So, um yeah, that was a great amendment, the Kerfuffle-Harris Amendment. <laughs> Is that right? Kefauver. Oh, Kefauver. Estes Kefauver. Uh, so another great success. Yeah. Well, that was the same one. Well, no, I mean, in addition to thalidomide. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and then in the news recently, you dug this up, the <laughs> Zohydra painkiller. You didn't hear about this? No, I haven't heard of this until today. It's uh, Apparently, it's pure oxycodone, correct? It is. There's For the a, first time. Yeah. There's um, all the other stuff like Vicodin and Oxycontin even are, are safer because they contain at least something else like acetaminophen or some other drug. Yeah. This is just pure hydrocodone. And um, you remember like there was a huge, huge problem with pill addiction to Oxycontin in particular. Yeah, it wasn't just Rush Limbaugh. Was a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, were really hooked on Oxycontin. And as a matter of fact... The current um, heroin addiction crisis in the U.S. is a direct result of the FDA stepping in and saying, like, hey, you guys need to do something with OxyContin. Like, people are crushing it up and injecting it. you got to do something. So, so now we'll just do heroin? There's, well, there's a tamper-resistant <laughs> thing where when you crush up OxyContin now, it turns into this goo that you can't inject or snort, right? Can you lick it off a mirror? You can. 
I guess, but I don't think it has the same effect, right? Gotcha. Because when you when you crush it up, it was time release, and when you crush it up, it's not time release anymore. It's like all there to give you this immediate yeah, dose, which is right? what drug abusers will often do. Right. So now that when you crush up oxycontin, it turns into a goo. Everybody's turned to heroin. Right. So now there's a heroin epidemic. This company making Zohydra came along and said. Well, that's cool. We'll just release this completely pure hydrocodone pill without any tamper resistance. So we're going to go back to square one, everybody, okay? And there was a huge outcry against this drug, and the FDA had stepped up and became a mouthpiece for it. Yeah, and the FDA will um, they will defend it, the decision by saying, well, putting things like acetaminophen has well-known liver damage risk. Okay. So this is actually more pure... You can actually take hydrocodone now. People in severe pain can take this drug without that liver toxicity risk. That, I mean, that's a point. No, it is a point. And if you're in severe pain in life and need this to to function or live out your life, then great. But that's, Make it tamper resistant. Yeah, that's not what people are arguing about. They're saying that this is a very high level for abuse. Right, because and, there's no tamper resistance. Yeah, exactly. So people are going to die because of this drug. Yeah, I think um, in 2010, uh, prescription hydrocodone and other prescription opiates accounted for almost 17,000 deaths, which is a fourfold increase from just uh, 10 or 11 years earlier. Right, and that was all OC before they made it tamper resistant. Orange County? <laughs> There's probably a lot of it in Orange <laughs> County. I bet there is. So there you go. Crazy stuff. It is crazy stuff. Um, I kind of am with that professor from Arizona that's just like safety. Like it, it's sad that the chief of that organization can't be someone who's super pro safety above all else. Yeah. Because that that's their job. There's such a tug of war between the public and, um, I guess, corporations over safety. Yeah. And the FDA's not pulling on our side necessarily. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll hear from all kinds of people from the pharmaceutical industry that will tout how seriously they take their testing and stuff. And we're not saying they don't. No, no. But um, no, I I think it is a. There are great protocols and standards sure. and procedures, but there's also plenty of times where they just overtly drop the ball. Yeah. And public safety suffered as a result. Agreed. Uh, if you want to know more about the FDA, you can go to the FDA website. FDA.gov. You can go to HowStuffWorks.com and type in FDA in the search bar. Don't forget to go to our podcast page on StuffYouShouldKnow.com for the FDA episode that you're listening to now. And uh, since I said search bar in there somewhere, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, We Inspired a Writer. Awesome. Hey, guys. And Jerry, first off, thank you so much for what you do. I've been a fan for over three years steadily working my way through the backlog, living in constant fear of the existential dread that will settle upon me the day I finish. Um, I've hooked my sister as well, and whereas our conversations used to be 100% Simpsons quotes, now it is 90% Simpsons, 10% stuff you should know. Wow. That's, that's a high honor. Uh, she says, but I digress. I'm writing because I'm an author of dark humor novels for young adults, and I wanted to express how helpful your podcast has been with inspiring and informing various elements of my books. For example, the one I'm currently writing is about a creepy candle factory in a creepy small town with a big creepy mountain where wax sculptures come to life 
And after listening to your earwax episode, Mount Saruman was born. Pretty neat. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, ever since uh, the Haunted House episode, I've been itching to write a horror uh, about a horror attraction that goes terribly and hilariously wrong. Number stations equal something awesome, and so on and so on. So we're inspiring her all over the place. Right. I never know where your inspiration is going to come from, but your show provides me with a steady stream of delicious possibilities. I wanted to thank you the best way I could, so I named a couple of off-screen high school characters after you guys in my most recently published book, Hellhole. Sweet. How about that? That is a huge honor. Pretty neat. Uh, And she's going to send us some copies, and one for Jerry, too, of course, she says. So uh, I'm going to send her our mailing address. and um, Thank you. She says, thanks for the brain snacks. And that is from Gina uh, Domico, D-A-M-I-C-O. And she has a website, and you can check out her uh, kind of uh, weird, funny, twisted uh, young adult novels at her site and support support writing. Yeah. Creativity. Sure. Uh, thanks a lot, Gina, right? Yeah, and uh, make sure you get L-O-L so you can see our names in print. <laughs> you don't like H's, do you? Oh, that was a waiting for Guffman joke. Oh, was it? Mm-hmm. Well, you'll explain it to me later, right? How are you? <laughs> uh, if you want to uh, get in touch with us to find out the waiting for Guffman joke Chuck just made, he'll respond to each each inquiry personally. Right. Uh, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com. You can join us on Facebook.com slash stuff you should know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs> <laughs>